Hey guys, it's Ed and I'm coming to you live from Bedrest here in Detroit. <clears throat> so, one of the things that I really missed uh, in the latter half of last season was talking about writing. So I convinced Will to let me do a whole episode surrounding writing. <laughs> um, and I think he's already living to regret it. Um... <clears throat> But so this this whole episode will be um, my thoughts on writing, writers, and uh, what's going on. So buckle up, kiddos. We are in for some fun today. <laughs> um, and of course, we have to start off with probably the biggest story in the publishing industry right now. And that is J.K. Rowling. She took her transphobia and put it into her new book, Troubled Blood. I believe that's the title of it. I refuse to search it, though, because, um, yeah, J.K. Rowling sucks. <laughs> but, so the whole premise is this guy, um, dresses up in a, he puts on a dress and, um, dresses as a woman and goes around and kills people. Which is problematic, given that we know J.K. Rowling is... Um, is transphobic. She does not believe in transgender. She doesn't believe that you can be a woman unless you menstruate. Um, and all that other good stuff. Uh, the book did debut at number one. But... I don't think this is news that should be celebrated um, by either side, honestly. Um, those that are with J.K. Rowling are celebrating because, it's, according to them, it proves that the majority don't care about her, her hatred of um, transgender people. But if you actually look at the numbers, um, this was not a huge success for her. Um, her... Uh, her last uh, Striker book actually sold more uh, in its first week. And <clears throat> that's been kind of a, a running theme with her. That uh, her her book sales have been declining more and more and more. Um, they peaked with Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Uh, and when she released... The Casual Vacancy, that did extraordinarily well. Um, that was her first adult book. Um, and then she, that's when she took on her pen name because she wanted to prove that, you know, she was a good writer and people would like her. Except that it was largely ignored until uh, an editor's wife leaked to the press that this was a J.K. Rowling book. And then it shot up the... Um, it shot the charts. So, what what do the sales figures actually mean? Um, again, it debuted at number one, but there's not been a lot of blockbuster books released uh, in 2020 so far in the in the fiction sector. That is, um. And despite everything, J.K. Rowling still has name recognition. So that's always going to help her. Um, but the backlash against her is very, very, very evident when... Um, I haven't looked at the sales figures, but my friend who works in publishing said that the pub that competing publishing houses are crowing that uh, the once unstoppable J.K. Rowling is finally being forced to deal with a controversy that even she can't talk her way out of. Now, here's the thing, and someone said, um, someone said that she's entitled to her beliefs. Absolutely, positively, I agree. I'm also entitled not to purchase her her books from her anymore, um, which hurts because my nephew is getting to the age where um, 
I think Harry Potter would be a great series for him. But I can't justify giving her any more of my money. Um, because of her her hateful attitude um, towards our transgender brothers and sisters. So. Um, when I asked him about the sales figures, basically what he said is that this is more in line with a breakout book than with a top-selling author. Um, and what he means is, you know, the first, the debut authors who, um, I don't want to say get lucky because I don't believe in that, uh, but who seemingly make it overnight. He said that um, these numbers correlate more with with that sort of thing than um, with an established author like J.K. Rowling. And he pointed to John Grisham, who generally um, uh, will sell um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of books his first week out. And when I asked if some of these could be protest buys where they're burning the books, he said it could be. Um, But even then, he would have expected, and everyone in the publishing industry expected, much larger numbers. So does this mean that her career is over? Absolutely not. These numbers are still going to be more than enough to make her company, her publishing house, a lot of money. Um... And as far as we know, at this point, uh, the TV show based on the uh, on these books is still moving forward. Um, the casual vacancy was an Emmy-winning uh, phenomenon on both sides of the pond. Uh, in the UK, it was, I believe, it was the single most watched um, television show of that year. Um, and over here, it may not have quite got that accolades, but it certainly um, has proved to be very, very um, popular. Uh, and again, I, it won a bunch of Emmys, I believe. Um, and it doesn't appear that that's going to be the case here, because as we've seen from... Uh, last week's Emmy show, um, when Schitt's Creek completely swept, um, when it completely swept the uh, comedy category, the, uh, the the Academy is more or less rewarding inclusiveness and in really great storytelling. Um, I've read The Cuckoo's Calling, and I forgot what the second book is called, but I read both of them, and. They're just inferior quality overall. Um, so I don't know if she just was working off a formula, if she hired a ghostwriter to do this for her, or what. Uh, what's going on. But these were just not the quality stories that um, one, would, one would be used to from J.K. Rowling. Uh, and I read these before she made her, her hateful comments, so it's not as if um, my belief... Um, if her beliefs rubbed up against mine and I was just already irritated with her. This was way before. And I told everyone that, you know, yeah, it was interesting, but it just, it, it just wasn't that good. So, what does all this mean for writers? Well, I asked um, a friend who I've worked with in the past what she thought. Uh, and when I say I work with her, I mean, like, we work together in terms of she's an agent and I'm a writer. Uh, and so we were trying to work out a project, worked on a project together. Her name is Betty. And what she said was basically, um, it's okay for writers to speak about their beliefs, but be prepared for the backlash. Um, when I suggested that J.K. Rowling is just a contrarian who enjoys 
um, stirring the pot, she said, well, I don't think you're wrong. Which is just really intriguing to me overall. Um, But um, she said in terms of sales and in terms of building an audience, if you want to be outspoken, if you want to be... Um, if you want to be outspoken, if you want to share your thoughts on political issues, just realize um, you are going to be limiting your audience to those who agree with you. Uh, even if you, even if you um, write a very compelling story, um, in this day and age, a lot of people won't read it because of. Um, your beliefs. Which is very good advice, and I think J.K. Rowling should maybe hear that. Anyways, I'm going to take a break, but we'll be back with more of our special writing episode. And I'm back. So, okay. Um, you know, this is our special writing episode that I fought really hard to get. <laughs> and when I say I fought really hard to get it, I mean, I said to Will, I want to do a writing episode. It's Will within our wheelhouse. And Will was like, I can't help much, but go ahead. (laughs) So, and I'm telling you this because I know he's going to listen to this and he's going to get so mad that I said that I had to fight for him. So, there you go. That was my fight. (laughs) Okay, so... Um, I've been having conversations. I, you know, I always talk to my friends about writing. Um, most of my friends are writers themselves. <coughs> um, and it just so happened that we, um, two of my friends and I ended up having the same conversation a couple of days apart. So, when it came to, um, when it came to um, this particular topic, I have to admit, I, when I was a young writer coming up, I kind of screwed the pooch. Um, I thought something was sexy, but, and it, and it is, it's very sexy, but it's not realistic. So what am I talking about? <laughs> um, young Ed would write sex scenes or very short erotic stories where two of the main characters would climax together. Um, and, you know, I was talking to to my friends about it, and I recognize now how, how cringe that is, how, how bad it is. It's lazy writing. Um, but then I started thinking, um, after my first conversation about it, Jackie Collins kind of did something very similar. Now, of course, Jackie Collins is an icon and a legend. Um, And, you know, she was writing in a much different era than I'm writing in. So, none of this is to say that I think she was a shitty writer or anything. I personally, um, you know, she was writing... And it, like I said, a different generation. She was writing for a completely different audience. Um, but what she would do is often her heroes were well-endowed and very generous lovers. Whereas her villains uh, had shortcomings downstairs and were very selfish lovers. Um, one passage I um, distinctly remember... Um, her, the villain of this, of this particular story, uh, got out of bed, and his wife's acting all angry with him, and in his thought process, he's like, I let her blow me, I let her give me a blowjob last night, why is she so angry? And, let's face it, we have all been there. We we all know men who are like that. Gay, straight, bi, pan, whatever. We all know men who 
believe that it is a pl- it is pleasurable for their partner to suck their dick. And I don't know why they think this. Um, and frankly, I'm not trying to get into their mentality. Um, but what I what's been really um, what's been really weighing on me is not that they feel this way. Um, but you know, when I was talking to my other friend and I brought that up as an example. Um, we we both kind of just took a step back and we thought about it for a minute because, you know, I, I've encouraged her to read Jackie Collins as I encourage everyone to read Jackie Collins' books because, again, I really do actually love her. Um, but so I started thinking, why did this, why was this something that she did? Um, obviously... It's how she envisioned the characters. Um, But there was something in my brain that just wasn't connecting. And I couldn't quite figure out where the disconnect was. And I think I finally reached um, my conclusion. Um... You know, she, Jackie Collins, really liked to um, play with, um, like, gray areas and not everyone was all good and not everyone was all bad. But, I think in her mind, and her psychology, she didn't think a bad guy could be good in bed and he should not be rewarded with a large penis and so what I'm so I started looking back and in my erotic stories including Crazy Rich um, Crazy Rich Homos um well in Crazy Rich Homos the, the villain is a woman uh, and we don't really see her sex life. Um, but in, in Crazy Rich, um, in my erotic stories, there is no real conflict. Uh, it, uh, in all honesty, it almost is just like porn. Um, and again, you know, I think it's okay to grow and learn and, and do this stuff. Um, I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. Uh, if I'm being completely honest, um, I think you have to write cringe things, even when you believe that you're, you excel and you're the best of the best and whatever. Because I think if you don't cringe, if you don't write something that's bad, then you can never really get to what's good. Um... And so for me, like, yeah, it was kind of cringe and like, oh, I can't believe I wrote this. Like, who the fuck thought I was going to have a career in writing when I'm this bad? But then I, I stopped and I, I kind of talked to myself and I talked to Will about it a little bit. Will's not one of the friends I had this discussion with, but, um, you know, I sometimes I get down on myself and I'm like, you know, and so I told him, I'm like, I reread some of my stories and they're not good. Like, I don't know. And he was kind of the one who gave me that that piece of sage advice. Uh, so thank you, Will. Um, you're very, very wise. Um, and like I said, to all the writers out there, please don't be afraid to make mistakes. Please don't be afraid to experiment. Um... And and please don't be afraid to fail. That's the biggest thing. Please don't be afraid to fail. Because with failure, you learn. Um, And then you you can grow into a truly great writer. And 
you know, outside of that one little complaint about Jackie Collins, her books are phenomenal. The characterization, the plot, everything is just, it falls so into place. Um, you know, I do have a few little quibbles about dialogue later in her later books. Um, the one in particular that I'm thinking about is uh, she has a 20-something character, say I called it an Uber, an Uber car. And I was like, no one talks like that. No one talks like that, Jackie Collins. Um, but again, um, when, I, when I take a step back and take myself out of the situation, I realize she, she did come from a, a different generation. Um, and frankly, she may have... She may have come from a generation who um, needed to fill in um, words, you know, so it's not really fair for me to say um, that she's a bad writer or that she's screwed up because I don't know what her, I don't know what um, her editors or her beta readers or anyone was saying to her um, but yeah, I'm going to take a break now, and I'll be right back. And I'm back. So, y'all know I I love to read, and I have been reading a lot more lately. Um, in fact, the next two segments are about books I, I read, um, or am currently reading, as is the case in this one, in this segment. So I'm cur- currently reading Intensity by Dean Koontz. And, it, you know, it's actually a really decent book. Um, I, I'm just getting into it, but I've noticed this problem with, with writers more and more lately. Uh, and I'm not sure um, if, if it's just, again, like I said in the Jackie Collins segment, I don't know if this is a, um, a generational thing. Or if this is an intellectual, I think I'm better than you thing. But there are some writers, and Dean Koontz is is guilty of this so far, where they tell tell the audience things that they don't need to know. Um, For instance, in the scene I'm reading, um, the characters are having dinner. And he tells us that they lifted the fork to their mouth. And here's the thing. Um, I, okay, so first of all, I do need to be 100% transparent here. Intensity came out in 1995. So it is an older book, 25 years old this year. So congratulations, Mr. Koontz, on that. Um, but, um, you know, without having, um, gone back and read a lot of books that were published in the 90s recently, maybe this was something that was done or acceptable. Um, but in 2020, it's not acceptable anymore. Um, you know... You have to treat your audience like they have an iota of intelligence. And this seems to be a really hard concept for um, some of these guys to comprehend. Some, I shouldn't say some of these guys, some of these writers to comprehend. Um, you know... Again, I know times have changed. I know things have kind of gone wonky a little bit. Um, But when you treat your audience with respect and like they're intelligent, you're going to get further and you're going to amass more of a following. I have ones, I call her a super fan um, because almost every article. I write 
she she comments on or um she leaves a little something for me um so that I know she read and we got into a conversation one day and she told me that one of the reasons why she likes my articles is because I don't have to spell everything out I let the audience deduce things for themselves um I had Will edit an article for me called The Criminality of Their Love. And there was one um there was one key detail that I, I left out. Um one of the guys lost his glasses and the cops found it and they used the glasses um as evidence. But I left out the the key detail of the cops finding the glasses. Um and when I I didn't do that because I was trying to, you know, be smart or anything. I did that because in the research, they never actually say how they found found the glasses or anything like that. So, as Will edited for me, he brought it to my attention. And he said, you know, Ed... It, it's okay um, to to say, like, hey, they found the glasses. He's like, you don't have to go into details about how they were found, but you definitely need to say that they found them because... So I thought about that. And then um, I talked to a writing friend of mine on Facebook, and, I, you know, we were talking about... Um, things you don't need to say to the, um, things you don't need to say to the audience. Um, the example he gave was, you don't need to say that, um, a a character buckles their safety belt, when, or their seatbelt when they get into a car. Most readers will automatically assume that. The only reason why you would say it is if you're foreshadowing a car accident or something happening in the car. Uh, and, you know, and then you would you would say it because then it becomes part of the plot. And... Uh, but otherwise, just saying it to say it... You're treating your audience like they're stupid and they're going to be turned off. And so, with Mr. Koontz, I don't think he thinks his audience is stupid. I do, I do kind of tend to think that it was a, a different time. Uh, you know, there's uh, also a very long backstory in the, in the beginning of this book. And I was like, uh, and, and you know, 100%, I didn't finish it yet, so I'm just kind of guessing here. Um, but I was talking to my best friend, who's also reading this book, and I said it doesn't make sense for him to to take up these pages. Like, it's at least four or five pages of this backstory if it's not going to drive... The plot later on down the line. Now, I know a lot of people are going to say, well, you know, Ed, it could be character development. You don't do, you don't info dump like that. And this was not even cool back in the 90s. I don't think info dumping has ever been um, one of the, I think info dumping is one of those things that has always been more frowned upon. Um... So, and and some of the, the way, some of the ways he worded, some of the ways that he worded, um, things led me to believe that this dude was, um, that this backs, this backstory was going to play a greater part later on. Um, and so. 
you know, what I'm trying to say and what I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting across here is know your audience. Um, trust your audience. Trust them that they're smart. You know, if you're going to dump in some backstory, uh, do it cleverly. Uh, don't info dump. Uh, because when you info dump, all you're doing is upsetting your audience. Um, and when you upset your audience, you're going to lose them. And you're not just going to lose them for one book. You're probably going to lose them altogether. Now, there are exceptions to every rule. I know that, you know that. Um, And we've all kind of been around. And we've seen authors who are not the the greatest um, continue to make a, a, a living writing and doing this. But I I offer to you that just because they made a living doesn't mean that their work was enjoyed. Um, you know, I look at Janet Evanovich, um, and the first couple of books in the um, Hannah Swenson series were super good, and then she just she started doing the same thing that Dean Kuntz is doing. Um, but that I could go on and on and on about her, and I could go on and on about Joanna Fluke, um, and maybe I will later. I don't know. Oh, I shouldn't say that because Will's going to yell at me that he wants to see the notes now. All right, I'm going to take a break, and I will be right back. <laughs> and I'm back. All right, so. In the last segment, I told you I, I wanted to talk about a couple of the books I was reading. So the other book I just finished um, is called I Have Something to Tell You by Chasten Buttigieg. Uh, and it's is a memoir. Uh, and it's so, so good. If you guys haven't read it yet, go buy it. Um, I've been telling everybody. Um, I'm sure everyone's sick of me saying to go buy this book. But seriously, go buy it. And I'm not even getting paid to say <laughs> Oh, uh, but um, the book is really good. And it's all about um, his life as a Midwestern boy coming out, uh, leading up to his um, romance and marriage to Mayor Pete. And I've I've read a lot of biographies and a lot of memoirs in my time. Um, for a long time, that's all I would read. Um, and but there was something really special about this one. Um, and the only other time I just fell in love with a book, uh, I shouldn't say I fell in love with the book. The only other time I really fell in love with a a memoir like this was Room of Clanahan's My First Five Husbands. Um. And the reason is because um, both Rue and Chastin give so much of themselves. Um, You know, Chastin really doesn't hide anything. And I feel like sometimes in memoirs, the the subject tries to make themselves seem more of a hero or more of a... um, more of a noble man than what they truly are. A noble man or a woman, I should say. Um, but, you know... When it comes right down to it... I don't want to read about how you're the hero. Frankly, I don't. And I don't think anyone else does either. What I want to hear is I want to hear the warts. I want to hear the badness of it all. Like, I want to hear what you did wrong and how that affected the rest of your life. And, and of course, in Chaston's book, it is very political. Um, But put politics to the side because he's not beating you over the head. 
okay, he is a little bit in towards the end, but um, for the most part, so the one of the things that struck me very much was growing up, um, and you know, I'm from Michigan myself. Um, we come from two very different towns. But it all basically boils down to the same thing. Um, he talks about how growing up, his brothers would use the word gay as an insult. Um, and how he was very conflicted about these feelings. And how, you know, he thought that good country boys were Republican and you know, that these feelings he was having were wrong. And then he started exploring them. Um, he went away um, on a student exchange program and started to um, like a boy and whatever. And it just really hit me because all this time I had been thinking like my story was unique. And then I was like, oh, it's really not. Um, obviously, I'm a little bit different than most people. I think Will will attest to that. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, to hear like he, he had really tried to be something that he wasn't. Um, that that really spoke to me because I I had two. Um, you know, there's a just before he met Mayor Pete, he had a boyfriend. Um, they moved. Like he went to school. Um, he tried to go to college quite a few times, as did I. Um, and just accumulated all this student loan debt, so he was trying to. He was trying to pay it back, but wasn't making enough. And I look at my at myself, and I tried to go um, to school several times. And um, something just always got in the way, and I accumulated a lot of student debt. <laughs> and so, when I hear people like Megan McCain say, well, I speak for the middle of America. No, you don't, sweetheart. We don't fucking like you. Okay, we don't. No. Um, and I know that seems harsh, but she doesn't speak for the middle of America. Someone like Chastin, who, you know, maybe his politics don't align with, with yours. But when you hear his story, he wasn't the gilded little princess of nepotism who got everything that he wanted. Like she did. So for her to pretend... To speak for middle America, bitch can go fuck herself. <laughs> and Will's going to have a fun time editing this. <laughs> uh, anyways, back to Chastin. <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, you know, Chastin had to work and he was working three jobs. Um, and he and his boyfriend seemed to be doing really well. Until they weren't. One day, Chastin was at work, and his boyfriend just said, you know, uh, you should go home for Thanksgiving. Uh, when you come home, I'm not going to be there. And that was it. That was the breakup. Um, and of course, as anyone would be after a two-year relationship ends like that, Chastin was depressed and whatever, and then eventually he got back out there um, and started talking to Mayor Pete. And I swear, if someone doesn't make Mayor Pete's and Chastin's first date into a play, there's something wrong, because it is the sweetest, most romantic thing ever. You know, I was, um, as I was reading the book, I texted my friend, and I told her, that um, I think I'm a, I would be a little bit too mouthy for for Pete Buttigieg. Um, because, you know, Chastin, um, once they meet and they get married, 
Justin talks about how, like, right after their wedding, um, Pete starts talking about running for president. Um, and that's when it does get a little bit more political. But, um, he, he more tells the story from just being the outsider, like, not having grown up in a political family and not really knowing what to do. And... So, as he tries to to figure that out, um, you know, he starts to come, you know, tell us things. And the the other cringe part for me um, was that in in his writing, Pete comes across as like this super, like superhuman, super sweet, super nice guy. Who never gets angry and who never shows any emotions. Like he's a robot. And I was thinking to myself like. I would never want to do that. Like even if my husband was running for president. I would still want to show the world why I love him. But also why sometimes. I kind of want to kick him out of bed. (laughs) You know and maybe of course. Um, I'm sure Pete and his Pete's team reviewed the book, um, and maybe there were instances where uh, Chastain had indicated that Pete was something less than perfect, or maybe he's still in the newlywed phase. Um, but whatever the case is, like that does bother me a little bit when you try to present um, a, a partner as all good or all bad, um, you know. When I tell the story of my abusive relationship, I work really hard to let people know that, like, he would never, ever come... I would never, ever take him back. I would never want to be with him again. But that doesn't mean the entire relationship was all bad. Um, you know, for me personally, uh, you know, I... I had lost all my self-esteem, and he was a little bit of a beacon for me, Um, but we actually enjoyed one another's company, and that's the thing, like, you can enjoy, you can remember times when you actually liked one another, when you weren't, you know, not everything is all bad is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Um, So... I, I kind of wish that there had been a little bit more balance. But, I mean, overall still, I loved, loved, loved it. So go by I Have Something to Tell You by Chastin Budishish. <laughs> and I'm going to take a break, and I'll be right back. And I'm back. So, okay, this... I'm going to read you this quote. And I just... I fell in love with it. Um, I'm not quite so sure that Will loved it, but... Sometimes that's how it be. (laughs) So, the quote is, When you make music or write or create, it's really your job to have mind-blowing, irresponsible, condomless sex with whatever idea it is you were writing about at that time. And, you know, I... Lady Gaga said that. And it really took me... Um... A little while to, like, contemplate it. Because on the surface, and a lot of people um, who are to my right would throw a shit fit about it. Because it seems like she's advocating for condomless sex. Even though she's talking about writing and whatnot. (laughs) But what it kind of led me to think more about was... Being a provocateur. Um, Which clearly is not what she meant. She was telling you, like, get in there and just be intimate with that idea and let the idea seep in. Um, But I still kind of... The reason why I thought of provocateurs is because people like Lady Gaga or Madonna, even Britney... um, They always have a point to make. 
they just happen to use sex or some sort of controversy to help them sell that point. And so for me, what I, as I was thinking about it, I, I, I started to think, well, you know, I kind of used to do the same thing. We talked earlier in this episode about how I um, cringed when I read some of my short erotica stories from the past. And, but when I gave them a second look, I still cringe because, um, you know, as I said before, the lovers climaxing together is just, it, it's a cliche and it doesn't really happen in real life. But then I realized, uh, and Will helped me with this a lot, Will and I um, do literary analysis together a lot. Um, but I I realized that I actually always had a point there, and that's LGBTQ couples, um, and my mostly in my stories, gay men, are normal couples um even if there were even if there weren't wasn't a lot of conflict or a lot of problems that were thrown at them i still showed um an ordinary couple trying to you know steal a few moments of pleasure um when i when I wrote Crazy Rich Homos, Will was gracious enough to read it for me. And one of the things that... Because I argued that there's no way anyone could do uh, a literary analysis on, on that. Because it was all literally just uh, me throwing ideas at the wall and seeing what stuck. And seeing what, what really happened um, with the characters. <laughs> But Will kind of said, well, you know, with your Jeff character, you're representing um, poor people or uh, lower middle class. And with Victoria and the Schellings, you're representing uh, the 1%, the, the uber wealthy. And then, like, tick by tick... He went through and and analyzed uh, for me, and really made a compelling case that I didn't realize I was making. And so, I've never told. Well, I shouldn't say I've never told. I've told some people about this, but not a lot of people. This is the first time I'm going public, public with, um, with the origin of Crazy Rich Homos. I liked a guy, and I found out that his family was wealthy. So my my plan all along had been to do a parody of Crazy Rich Asians. Um, I had just read the book, and I was thinking, of like, I just want to do a goofy, silly comedy. Um, up until that point, I had been doing a lot of serious true crime stuff. And, you know, it was just weighing me down. So I was like, I kind of want to do something fun, something for me. And so, I I decided to do this. And then when I found out that the guy I like is uber wealthy, I was like, oh. Um. And so, yes, like, when, after Will did that, I sat and meditated. And I was like, holy fuck. Like, this was my subconscious trying to, like, you know, this is, this is what it is. Um, one of the subplots was um, Victoria, the main villain of the of the book in the, um, mostly of the series. Um, she paid um, Jeff's boyfriend's ex girlfriend to pretend to be pregnant. Um, and as she and as Victoria and Jeff started to slightly turn their relationship, 
she uh, she more or less um, felt guilty and tried to call it off, but it was too late by then. And Jeff was able to figure out what happened. Um, which further bonded which further bonded them. And so Will pointed out that um, I've always had the superpower where I can tell if a guy is gay or straight. Um, even if he identifies as straight, I can always kind of tell if there's something not 100% there. Um, as is the case with the guy I like. Um, and so, to Will, it, it actually totally made sense that um, this would be a fear of mine, like, that someone would try to claim to be pregnant to try to break um, me and my guy up. And so, as I grappled with the Lady Gaga quote, I I started thinking, like, um, in Crazy Rich Humbles, I do layer in a lot of... Um, I do layer in a lot of sex um, scenes between Jeff and Scott. And so I was like, well... Uh, Will and I were having a conversation... Uh, just before the pandemic hit. And I said to him, you know, I, I didn't realize this was going to be one of the last times I've seen him for nearly a year. Um, but I, I said to him, I said, you know, what do you think? Like, how will the sex scenes be interpreted um, by literary scholars down the road? And he said, well, I figured, he's like, they were twofold. They were character building, showing us the passion and love that these two men had for one another. But he was like, there, it's also showing that it's possible for these, for the lower class and the, for the lower class and the um, 1% to, to get along, to love one another, and to help one another and share. He's like, and ultimately, I think that's what this is all about, is, you know, sharing the wealth and sharing uh, things like that. And it, as I'm planning out Crazy Rich, uh, Crazy Rich Wedding and Crazy Rich Baby... I'm, I'm just kind of thinking, like, what is going to happen next in this series? Because it's always been a planned trilogy, just like the Crazy Rich Asians. Like I said, it was a, it was meant to be a parody and just kind of started reflecting my real life. Um, so, so in my brain, I, like, as I've wrestled with the idea of what I want to happen for Crazy Rich Wedding, I've kind of been contemplating where do I want to take the series? Where does the series want to take me? And what other points do I want to make about the economic system using a gay romantic comedy? <laughs> so I'm going to leave you with that. I'm going to take a break and I'll be right back. And I'm back. So, I uh, I have a friend. Her name is um, Sam H. Arnold, and she um, is my co-editor um, on a publication over on Medium. Um, and she put together a book called I have to I have to look at the title because I always get it wrong. <laughs> it is. The many theories and conspiracies related to Jack the Ripper. And, okay, so it's it's not a secret to y'all that um, my 
quote unquote day job is a true crime writer. And, uh, you know, obviously Sam is also um, a true crime writer. Uh, but she's she is probably more well known for her parenting, uh, her parenting articles, or her writing tip articles. But let me tell you. Um. So she, we at Crime Beat we we talk and we have criteria that each article has to meet before we hit publish. Uh, but even before that, I was I read some of her Jack the Ripper stuff, and I was just so blown away by how she handles the information and really brings you into the era of Jack the Ripper. And because I, I truly believe that the best way to... Um, the best way to go about things... Um, the best way to get good at your job is, especially if you're a writer, is to read um, the titans of your um, of your genre. To that end, you know, I read a lot of Anne Rule, and I read a lot of M. William Phelps. And the two could not be more different. Uh, Mr. Phelps is very... Oof. Um... Very fact oriented. Um, he doesn't al- to me. He doesn't allow for a lot of emotion or um, go into like the relationship between people. Whereas Miss Rule did. She kind of dug into the relationships. She kind of dug into all of that sort of thing, which is m- my style matches more of Anne Rule's. Sam's kind of blends both styles perfectly, um, because she's she's just a fantastic writer, and um, but after I read the book, I started thinking to myself about how and why I got into true crime, and the truth of the matter is. Um, like most of my writing career, it was a mistake. Um, so what I mean by that is the very first um, r- romantic slash erotic fiction story I submitted was, um, it was very good, I stand by it. And I built to the twist just like a professional, <laughs> if I do say so myself. <laughs> Which I didn't actually judge said that to me. Um, but um, the judge kind of took me to task because they wanted more of the sex. So from there, I realized I was really good at creating these characters um, who had chemistry, who people actually wanted to see have sex. So I was like, oh, wow, okay. Um, and so when I started writing True Crime, um, I had read an article about the McDonald's marketing scam where the dude stole um, like $7 million or something like that. It was an obscene amount of money. And... As I sat there, trying to figure out, um, like, figure out why the story wasn't resonating with me. Like, it had everything I find intriguing. McDonald's, Monopoly, a crime. <laughs> um, I, I kind of ended up figuring it out halfway through. It was a disoriented mess. Um, the, the author of this article went from one, one piece of the puzzle to a whole other section of the scheme back over and just kept zigzagging all the way through. And I thought to myself, 
let me let me try something. So I started to um, pull together all this research, including using the article that I was um, dissecting. I, so I pulled together all this research, and I told it in a narrative that made chronological sense. Um, and it exploded. Um, it was one of the first articles outside of the sex articles where I actually made some real money. So I tried it again. Um, the second one didn't do quite as well, but it still made more than almost everything else. So I kept throwing things at the wall just to see what would stick. And then finally, then finally, I um, I got a job at another publication which has since ceased operations. Um, and the the crime articles there didn't do so well, so I was like, oh fuck, like. I finally found the snitch. I mean, I could I could have still wrote um, for the other platform, and I still do. But it was kind of like, oh, I was so close. I was so, so, so close. Why? Why did it have to... Um, and then I just kind of stopped and thought to myself, I actually enjoy writing crime. I'm not making money from this platform. And so I, that's when I jumped over to Medium. <laughs> and for a long time on Medium, I kind of like just threw things at the wall. And what I noticed was happening was my true crimes, which I was only doing um, for a while. I was only doing true crime like once a week. Um, but those were the money makers. Those were the ones that was um, that were grabbing people. And so then I started writing more true crime and more true crime. And it all just kind of exploded for me in this really fabulous way where, um, you know, now I realize, like, this is, this is wonderful. And I've had people who normally don't read my writing or who I shielded from my writing, especially when it was... Um, more sex-oriented. Um, who are who have started reading my um true crime articles, and w- one of them told me uh, she messaged me on Facebook and said, "You know, I didn't care for your po- political articles. I didn't care for your." Um, sex articles, but your true crime is just so good. And I asked her, I'm like, well, what's the difference between me and the hundreds of thousands of other true crime writers out there? And her answer kind of just shocked me was because I focus on the relationships, whether it's mother and daughter, father, um, father and son, husband and wife, mother, daughter, um, crush and, um, object of obsession, Whatever it is, I focus on the relationship between um, the people. And that's what really um, draws them in. Um, Or, in some cases, like I wrote about Samuel Little, and I focus on his psychology. I'm digging a little bit deeper into his childhood and whatnot. And my aunt said to me, you almost humanize these people, you know, we, we're still not rooting for them, but we understand them a little bit better when we walk away after, um, after having read your article. And I thought, well, that's just my aunt saying that. And, um, but another lady, one of the ones I call my, one of my super fans, um, commented on a piece and said the exact same thing. Um, which made me feel really good because that that is what I want to do. I do want to, um, I don't want to humanize or, um, redeem a murderer, but I do want to show, like, there, there's something that went tick. 
Um, and I think that's really important in all of all of the writings that we do. Um, it is to show that there is something that makes people go tick. There is something that makes them snap and want to kill another human being. Um, and it's something that Sam does so well. Um, her book is on Amazon, so go. Uh, I believe it's available for free um, if you have Kindle Unlimited. Um, and if you don't, um, I believe it's like two ninety nine, and it's called the mini series and conspiracies related to Jack the Ripper. Go download it, read it. It's a really easy read, and I promise you, you will walk away with. A little bit more knowledge about Jack the Ripper, and you'll be entertained. <clears throat> That's going to do it for this special writing episode of Drunk Gossip. Y'all, thank you so much for listening, as always. Will and I truly appreciate you. And until we talk again, cheers. <laughs>